we're going to transition and uh, chat and kind of begin for the next uh, little while talking about marriage. Um, next week, we'll we'll look at uh, dating, um, and then we'll look at singleness, and then we'll look at friendship. That's what we'll be doing for the next four weeks. Um, here's where I want to start. I want to show you this picture. Uh, this is a picture of who went to the uh, Bob Ross painting party a couple months ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think it was one of the best, second best postie. This is the best postie. Uh, this is Connor's terrible, horrible Bob Ross painting. Um, but this, if you weren't there, people painted drawings of a man painting a drawing of a real thing, of, of a mountain and rivers and uh Sorry, I'm going to be moving a lot tonight. I, I played basketball today, and I, like, really jacked up my back, which is why I couldn't stand up. Um, and it's – I might even sit down because it's really not feeling great. Um, I'd take my muscle relaxers right now, but I would take 45 minutes to talk to you. So if I did that uh, – okay, back on track. So we drew a painting of a painting of the real thing, okay? Um, and be, precisely because there is a real thing – Someone could draw a picture of it, and someone could draw a picture of the picture. Um, if there was no such thing as mountain, it'd be, uh, there, if there was no such thing as a mountain, it would be impossible to draw a mountain, um, and even more impossible to draw an image of, of an image. Maybe you're confused, um, but hang with me. Um, Christianity's claim is that there is a real marriage. A, it's the real thing. It is the ideal thing, and it's a mystery, but it's between Christ and his church. In the institute of marriage that God ordains between a male and a female in the Garden of Eden is like the Bob Ross painting of the real thing. It's not the real thing. It's an image of the real thing. In all of our marriages this side of sin and the fall are like drawings, drawing the, the image of the real thing. And they're cruddy. And they don't, they have all sorts of kinks and hard days and good days and messy days. But it's not the real thing. Um, and, here, and here's why that's important. Um, consider for a second if I had you draw a thingamajigger. If, you were to, if I were to ask you to draw a thingamajigger, nothing comes to your mind. You'd have no idea what to draw because there is no thing. But if I asked you to draw a mountain, everyone's mountain would look a little bit different, but everyone would draw a little hump uh, and maybe some different details and, you know, whatever. But, but because there's a mountain, your mind goes to this is what I should draw, something like this. Um, marriage is not a human invention that's subject to change. It's not a thingamajigger that we make up. Um, just like we didn't create mountains, we didn't create marriage. Um, marriage is not a human invention. The Christian claim is that marriage is a mystery, but it's the divine revelation of Christ's marriage to the church. That's the real thing that all images 
are to resemble. And as a Christian in this room, your primary marriage is to Christ. It's your primary marriage. You and I are first covenantally committed to Christ. He is our head and we are his body. A marriage is about his sacrificial, life-giving love for a wandering bride that he adores. And we see this, this marriage imagery in the middle of the Old Testament and all throughout, but particularly in the middle of the Old Testament in the prophetic books. God starts to communicate this, this analogy, this image of, of God's marriage to a broken people. Um, in this particular verse that gonna, we're going to walk through, Israel was, was wandering away, and he wanted to communicate his love and commitment to them. Um, and so we see in the book of Hosea, so he picks this prophet Hosea, who was commanded to behave in a physical way to represent a spiritual reality. So he says to Hosea, oh wait, that's the Bob Ross picture. <laughs> um. This feels like our marriage some days, doesn't it? Um, that's, the, that's the thing right there. It's the thing of the thing. So he communicates to Hosea. He wants him to physically act a reality to, rep, or to, to, to represent a spiritual reality. So he says, the Lord says to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom. He loves that word by forsaking the Lord. And so Hosea went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. In other words, my people keep chasing after other gods. They keep seeking other loves. That represents Gomer, my people. And the story continues, and Gomer and her children represent Israel and their wandering. They flee from their husband and their father. They are adulterers. They are idolaters, loving other gods. But the Lord has mercy on his bride. He says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And in that day, he's speaking here. Um, so he says, and in that day, and he's speaking here of both the time of Christ's coming and the time of Christ's second coming. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You shall know the Lord. And the Lord said to Hosea, go again, go to this woman and love her. The one who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. Um, it's a strange twist. Cakes of raisins, in other words, they love these pleasurable, desirable to their eyes things. Buy her for 15 shekels, and he goes on to, to tell her, buy her back. Buy her back. You know, marriage is a mystery. It's the divine revelation of Christ's marriage to the church. Marriage is about his sacrificial, life-giving, blood-pouring, purchasing back of a wandering bride whom he adores. The essence of marriage is to be fully known, fully seen, 
and to be fully loved, fully provided for, fully protected. And that's what we have in our marriage to Christ. And in response to that, we are his bride who are to abide, to remain in his love, in our obedience, in our worship, in our service, in our mutual love for one another. In a sense, we are Christians who have made these vows to Christ as our husband, to be faithful to the end. But the real marriage is about our faithlessness overcome by his faithfulness. It's about his steadfast love. Again, this is beautifully depicted in the book Songs of Solomon, which is a book explicitly depicting the romance in this marriage. It's the ins and outs of the real thing, the marriage of Christ and his bride, portrayed by a husband and wife. In chapter 8, it reads this, and this is the, the husband, Jesus, speaking to the bride. He says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. A seal was, was the, the signet ring. It was the stamp of a family. It's how you, when you got mail, you would stamp it. This, is, this comes from us. Set me as a seal. Commit yourself to me. Wear it around your neck or, or, or go and put it on your arm. Set me. Commit to me like a seal on your arm. For my love for you is as strong as death and my jealousy is as fierce as the grave. In other words, he's saying, as certain and as unchanging, as much as you can't stop death, you cannot stop my love for you. Many waters won't quench it, neither can floods drown it. If a man were to come to me and offer all of the wealth of his house to me, He would be utterly despised. He would be rejected. In other words, man offered me all of his money in exchange for my love for you. Even that I won't take. This is the real thing. That's the real mountain. That's the real river. This is Christ's dedicated, eternally committed, always with us, always for us, unchanging, never stopping love for his bride. The mystery of this marriage is that faithless sinners are called saints, that faithless adulterers are called beloved. You know, take this for whatever you want it to be. Um, you know, usually this time of year, I feel really hurried and just things are on my mind. Um, and so this morning I was praying and I was praying that, that the Lord would help me be still. Before I got to my office, before I just want to be so productive and get so many things down and done and just prayer goes out the window. And this morning I was sitting and I was praying, Lord, help me be still and know that you are God. I slow down. Um, you know, last night I was listening, I'm going through this, this course, the Sonship Discipleship course, and I was listening to this, this lecture about the fatherhood of God and and so these images of God as this loving father came to my mind and the spirit bringing me into his presence. And I'm thinking and I'm sitting here, where is Christ? Where is Christ? And this image comes to mind of Christ coming to my side, presenting me to the father, pleased, delighted in who I am, proud of who I am. There's this tender moment. 
felt and experienced the peace, the stillness. I think this lines so well, lines up so well with Ephesians 5. You know, Paul goes through um, his discussion in, in the husband and wife, and he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's this presentation to the Father. Look who I brought you. That's you. That's me. That's his church, his people, his bride. This is the real thing. And what flows from this is a humble response from all of us, dedicating, surrendering our life, adjusting our life in a sacrificial regard of one another and a sacrificial regard of Christ. This is the mountain. This is the real mountain, the real river. And so what's the Bob Ross image of it? Um, well, the image of the real thing, um, this is, I'm going to say, a fancy word. It was prefigured. Um, this means that there were, there were things that happened pointing to Christ before Christ. And marriage in the garden was a prefigurement of this real marriage between Christ and his bride. Just like the manna from heaven in the wilderness in Exodus was a prefigurement of the real manna from heaven, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. This was a prefigurement of the real thing. This came in the garden. It's a human. It's an earthly. It's a very momentary snap of a finger in comparison to the glory of eternity. It's a secondarily important, yet beautifully and wonderfully designed relationship, ordained and given to us by God for his glory, to be an image pointing to his marriage. And marriage between a male and a female came prior to sin. It was made and it was good. It was made before any abuse. It was made before any domineering. It was made before any abandonment. It was made before any coveting, before any jealousy, before any quarreling. It was made before sin and it was good. Now, there is one image of the real thing that is a collection of verses that is a, 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 it's, it sweeps through the landscape of Scripture. And it's this image which you see in your bulletin. It's this image from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And this is what it says. And God said, let us make humanity in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and the livestock and every creeping thing. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is both referring to um, a sexual multiplication. Make kids, but also multiply the blessing of God for you. Extend Eden to the, to the corners of the earth. Multiply the glory of God to all the corners. And have dominion over the fish and the birds, over everything that moves on the earth. So this is the first account. This is Genesis 1 is more of the, the structured, ordered overview, told in a poetic way. And then 
chapter two gets real relational, gets really into the nitty gritty. Which is why in chapter one, you know, the word God is Elohim. This is a powerful creator. And in chapter two, it's the Lord God, it's Yahweh Elohim, which is the relational God who comes to our side. So chapter two, we see the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib of the Lord God had taken from the man, he was made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, at last, the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh, flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. This word is cleave. Um, It's like my daughter, when she's tired or sad or hurting, she cleaves on to my wife, will not let her go. The man is to cleave, do not let her go to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, fully seen, fully known, unashamed, fully loved. This is a spiritual union that God blesses, has ordained, and nourishes. Um, He cares so much about marriage. We're really flying through a lot of scripture tonight. But there's this one particular scene, again, to, to both see how much he cares about marriage and also to see how this language is used all throughout scripture, sprinkled in all over the place. We see in the book of Malachi, The Lord was angry with Israel. He was angry. Why? Why was he not accepting their offering? Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Here he's rebuking the men. He's rebuking the men. Though she's your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and was What was that that God was seeking? He was seeking godly offspring. They've abandoned their earth. um, They abandoned their multiply on this earth command. God's design. The spirit has united them and they've been faithless. And he's angry. He cares so much about marriage. Um, We fast forward to the New Testament. The Pharisees come up to Jesus trying to stump him. They test him. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus points back to the narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. Thousands of years after this is written, still holds its authority. Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. 
What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And they said to him, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. This passage from Genesis 1 and 2 is picked up by Jesus. It's picked up by, by Paul. We see Paul, he describes this male-female oneness, this beautiful dance between husband and wife and how it, how it all functions and, and how it, uh, it, it dances and moves and grooves to the rhythm of God. And he concludes at the end of this, referring back to the garden. Why should you do that? Well, because remember what it says? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. The two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to the real thing, to Christ and the church. This image from the garden before sin. This is an image of the real thing. And this is what the Bible continually points to when talking about marriage. And therefore, we are to point to it as well. And I want to talk about sin um, and, and how it's, it's affected things and and what we can learn from that. But first, I do want to speak to probably the most difficult part of this passage. The Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone, so I'll make him a helper fit for him. I want to talk about this word helper. That word is used 19 times in the Old Testament. Um, 16 of those times, it's in reference to God who is Israel's helper. So this word cannot denote an ounce of inferiority, an ounce of inability. It does not communicate one is less important or one is less powerful. This is why the woman was taken from the rib. The woman's taken from the side of the man, for they are equals side by side. I know it's hard um, we walk into this place with these particular texts. Maybe you're unfamiliar. There are lots of tricky texts in, in Scripture, particularly talking about marriage. But we walk in with all sorts of assumptions that we bring into these texts that are both given to you by culture, but maybe more than that, given to you by church people, maybe things that you've heard. And so my first thing is remember, you've got to look at the real thing. That's the model and the framework for everything else. Don't look at the image of an image of the real thing because it's sinful and sloppy. You know, some of you are scared of marriage because your parents' marriage is terrible. But that doesn't make marriage terrible. This just exposes the evidence of sin. Some of you are scared of this word helper because you've seen men abuse and dominate over women. You think this promotes some sort of superiority and inferiority complex. But that's not the real thing. So, see, here's what we've got to do. We have to lean in. We've got to hold the tension of the paradox that this provides for us. Because what this text says is that the woman is there to help the man accomplish their mutual calling. The woman is there to help the man accomplish their 
a mutual calling. The calling is for them together to rule and to subdue and have dominion. And this is pre-sin. There's no coveting. There's no abuse. There's no jealousy. There's no power struggle. It's a harmonious dance living with one another and with God, accomplishing his eternal mission to extend and multiply other image bearers and his glory to the ends of the earth. This is not a man's world, like James Brown says, and women are just there for us. It's not what this is saying. This is God's world. And the man is leading the charge and extending God's glory, and the woman is helping with that charge in their mission. Man, when that's done in marriage, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, we think of the Bible, the Bible is a lot of things. It's a narrative, it's poems, it's prayers, it's instruction, but the Bible is also a mirror. You know, we are, for example, I remember hearing something that says, you know, we're, we're, we're to read the Exodus story and not be like, look at those fools who are grumbling along. We are to place ourselves and it be a mirror back to us. Man, I am a grumbler. In the same way, let this man, male, female, be a mirror. Let it be a check of your heart and intention. Let the real thing convict you. Um, or let, let it do that down the road, I guess, when you get married. Um, um, all right. So now we're on the Connor's terrible painting. Um, how sin affects marriage. Um, so let's move on. So, the serp- so he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, but we can eat the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the, free- the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you'll not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig fig leaves. So what does Eve do? Um, No, sorry, I I, I jumped ahead. Um, so, So here they are together in the garden, subduing, ruling, having dominion. The serpent comes to the woman. Do you remember who God gave the instruction of what tree not to eat to? Um, dang it, I thought I'd put it in there. Do you remember who he gave it to? He gave it to the man. He gave it to the man at the end of, of, beginning of of chapter two. The Lord God said to the man, oh wait, sorry. The Lord God commanded the man, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall eat. And, And the serpent comes to the woman and Adam standing right by her side. Which is why when Paul in the New Testament links um, who is to blame for the sin of man, he doesn't say Eve. Who is to blame? Adam. Because Adam committed the first sin. He did not step in. He did not lead. And he did not tell and reiterate the promise and the message of God to Eve. 
What did he do? He stood by, stayed silent, and he was a coward. You know, the word male in Hebrew, um, it's the strong one. No, it's not the strong one. It's definitely not the smart one. The word male in Hebrew is the remembering one. One who remembers. You know, one of the questions that I got um, from, from the link is, you know, tell me about the man's call to lead a family. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means to be a male. It means to remember and to remind your wife and your family of the promises and the goodness of God. But what does Adam do? He's a coward. He's by her side and he stays silent and she's deceived. And what does Eve do? She takes charge. She moves into what looks good to her and desirable. And she moves towards it and eats. And now you see the sinful dance. The funk, right? It's just a funk of marriage. You can get in. The man's passive. The man's silent. And the woman sees what's desirable and takes control. Now the man, what's the image? What's the real thing say? The man ought to be sacrificing his life for his bride, cleaving to her side, pursuing oneness, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, laying down his life for her. But instead, men are passive and they're silent. We drift away to the golf course and the internet and social media and pornography and work. And the driving question, the, there, there's both men and women have two driving questions that lead them into their life. The driving question for the man, as you enter into life, you need to know, am I capable? Do I have what it takes? And you know what? Can I speak honestly? There's nothing that, that exposes how incapable of a human I am in marriage. And so know what I do? I escape. I don't pursue her. I don't lay my life down for her. I escape and I'm passive and I'm a coward. You know, the woman ought to be complimenting the husband on their, or complimenting alongside the husband on their mission, but she's not pursued by a passive husband. And so she takes things into her own hands. She takes control instead of trusting God. You know, the driving question for a woman is, am I lovable? And because her passive husband is not answering that question for her, she demands it out of him or else finds it elsewhere. It's a sinful dance. You know, there was a, um, a recent article written by, by a magazine that was researching and detailing why families are falling apart in America and how to make marriages and families more resilient. It was done by sociologists Eden and Maria Kefales. And they cite these, these significant ideological shifts since the 1950s that have contributed to tearing apart marriages. First, they say the primary purpose of marriage has always been about child bearing and child rearing and sacrificially living for one another. You did not enter into marriage to make, for that to make you happy. But now we've moved towards a new purpose of marriage, 
being self-fulfillment. What's really being said in this shift is clear. Marriage is primarily about me. Marriage is about my happiness and fulfillment. And this mindset leads to wreckage. We, the church, must reject the me-first attitude that dominates our culture. A beautiful marriage and family is not dramatic. It's built on the subtle attention to what others need and want, serving each other in small ways in which you show, you understand each other's moods and cherish their presence, that he or she is the center of your world. We must surrender our ego for the larger union given to us by God. What a beautiful depiction of marriage. It's an active man sacrificially pursuing oneness with his wife cleaving to her. And it's a woman actively coming alongside her husband in their mission in the world together. Um, next.